From the Partnership for Public Service, you're listening to Transition Lab, a behind-the-scenes look at presidential transitions. I'm David Marchick. Today on Transition Lab, we're focused on perhaps the most important issue in presidential transitions, the national security of the United States. Transitions are a time of great vulnerability, huge change, significant turnover in personnel. And history also shows that events don't wait for a new president to be ready. Consider this. In Clinton's first month alone, he faced a Haiti refugee crisis, a World Trade Center bombing, which occurred on February 26, 1993, and two days later, a siege in Waco, Texas. And in the early days of the George W. Bush administration, the Chinese military downed an American surveillance plane in Hainan Island, China. And of course, President Bush was forced to deal with the September 11th attacks less than eight months after he took office. To discuss these issues, we have two experienced and knowledgeable guests. First, we have Steve Hadley. Steve is a U.S. Navy veteran and with the exception of the Trump administration, served in every Republican administration since Ford. He spent eight years in the George W. Bush administration, first working on the transition, then as Deputy National Security Advisor, and then as the National Security Advisor to the President. Steve also oversaw what is widely seen as the gold standard in national security transition planning when he left office in 2009. Our second guest is Kurt Campbell. Kurt is a Navy veteran and spent time in both the Clinton and Obama administrations. During his tenure, he served at the Defense Department in a senior role and was Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian Affairs, a very, very important job, where he was one of the architects of President Obama's and Secretary Clinton's pivot towards Asia. He has received virtually every award available in foreign affairs and is the author of 10 books. With Jim Steinberg, Kurt has written an excellent book on the topic of foreign policy transitions called Difficult Transitions, Foreign Policy Troubles at the Outset of Presidential Power. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us, David. It's great to be with you, Dave. Thank you very much. So, Steve, let me start with you. What attracted you to government service and getting into the national security field in particular? So I was in the Navy in the Pentagon and I had a chance to go work for the then Deputy Attorney General as a lawyer where I'd been trained or to go to the National Security Council to work for Henry Kissinger. And I, I read a book about the Justice Department. Then I read John Newhouse's Cold Dawn and about arms control negotiations. And I thought that was for me. So I went to the NSC staff. And once I, I had that exposure, I was hooked. And I got to know a group of people who were interested in and working in foreign policy, and they became my colleagues for the next 30 or 40 years. It's been a wonderful career. Well, the country is lucky to have you uh, as a public servant. You've done amazing work. So, and Kurt, you have a distinguished background and have been in and out of government. What drew you to write a book on transitions? Well, thank you, Dave. So I, like Steve, was drawn to government. I'd been in the Navy. I'd been an academic and had you know studied music. And just once I had the opportunity to serve, it really, it felt, you know, 
personally compelling and you know professionally deeply rewarding. I had a chance uh, to serve in the Treasury Department uh, during the transition between H.W. Bush and President Clinton, and I remember those days right around you know the inauguration. I was the only person on the third floor, and I was struck during that period at how. You know, at times our institutions seem powerful and and terrifically able to handle these Herculean tasks on the international stage and at home. But then there are these other times where the sort of the linkage periods, when we hand power from one group of people to another, the, the institution seems more fragile, uh, more uncertain. And I think from that experience, I wanted to write a book and I, uh, you know, Steve and I both share a, a friendship with our friend Jim Steinberg. He, he thought it was a good idea. So we set about trying to put together a series of sort of uh, insights from a number of case studies, much in the way you have done uh, with this podcast, Dave. Well, it's a wonderful book and anybody interested in transitions should get it. It's called Difficult Transitions by Kurt and Jim Steinberg. It's it's highly recommended. So Steve, we want to talk about longer term issues, but it I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about what's going on today. So we have a situation when we're recording this today where the President of the United States has had or has COVID. About a dozen of his top advisors have it, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff are now quarantined. So is this a moment of vulnerability for our national security? And what are our adversaries thinking right now about the United States? So there is a lot written now. People say that this is a time when our adversaries, whether nation states or terrorist groups or others, might try to take advantage of perceived American weakness or distraction. I'm actually not too worried about that. You know, yes, people are quarantined, but through the miracle of modern communications, uh, the government is able to do business and continue to do business. And the people who are quarantined can, and to the extent that they are disabled for a period of time, there are others who can stand in for them. Uh, I think there is a the, the whole COVID crisis is having enormous impact on the image of America internationally about why it is that this country, with all its gifts and all its sophistication, seems to be handling this uh, this virus almost worse than almost any other country. This is, I think, badly affecting our standing. But I think uh, I don't think this is a moment of national security peril, in part because I think a number of countries, I think China, Russia, Iran, don't want to do anything that looks like they're intervening in our election in a decisive way and don't want to tip the election anyway. And so I think until the election is over, uh, absent some kind of uh, accidental uh, confrontation between our deployed uh, military forces or something like that. I think we're relatively safe. I do worry about once the votes are in, once November 3rd has passed, and if it looks we're going to be in a period of, of fairly extended uncertainty as to who's actually won this election with a lot of, you know, contested lawsuits and contested ballots being recounted and the like. I'm more worried about a country trying to take advantage of us during that kind of period, which begins to look like we're in the middle of a, a constitutional crisis and distraction. That I worry a bit about. And Kurt, what Steve is talking about is essentially the essence 
of your book that transitions create this moment of vulnerability where foreign countries, foreign state actors, you know, or opponents, adversaries of the United States want to take advantage of this moment. So what do you think, you know, China better than anybody else that I know. What do you think the Chinese are thinking and reading into the situation in the United States right now? And what might they be misreading? Well, I tend to agree with Steve. I, th- I think many countries are standing back, some frankly in shock at what's happening in the United States. And I, I think it's unlikely that we'll see the kind of adventurism that you know used to play out during the Cold War with the Soviets. I don't think either Russia or China is tempted to act right now. If you look at what's what we've seen over the last several months are a series of steps by the Trump administration really designed to provoke China in some way. And I think with the idea that that would be perhaps valuable in terms of making the case about why President Trump could stand up to China more directly. So I, you know, I'm I'm kind of with Steve again here. David, I'm less worried about these international challenges. I, you know, I looked at difficult transitions uh, before before we, you know, got started today. And I was I was struck at how quaint it read, you know, like in which certain norms and, you know, accepted paradigms were in play. I, I'm kind of with Steve. I think after the election, you don't realize how much of our transition is built on a degree of goodwill. And when I and Jim wrote this book, the worst that we could imagine was something like, you know, Iran hostage crisis, Taiwan Straits issue. But I think the real issue this time is not the threat externally, the unexpected incident, but the absolute crumbling of our our institutions and our constitutional order. And, and that, I think, is the biggest worry. And that's the issue that at least keeps me up at night. Steve, you have as much transition experience as any other person. I was thinking about it, maybe Vice President Cheney, because he was chief of staff in the Ford administration and handled the outgoing transition to, to Carter. But you've been involved in every transition since Ford, when you were a national security staffer. So how have transitions in the national security space changed over those many cycles of transitions in and out? Well, it, it's an area where there's been a actually enormous improvement. So to give you an example, uh, in the transition from Ford to Carter, the National Security Council staff, of course, was much smaller. But basically, Bill Hyland, then the Deputy National Security Advisor, went around to everybody and said, as of election day, your services are terminated. And there were only three or four of us who were asked to stay on uh, with the new team. Um, and I was one of those. So when the new team arrived on January 20th, there was basically no National Security Council staff except three or four of us until Dr. Brzezinski should, could bring in his own people. Secondly, I came in, into the office the day after the election and I went to my file, my file cabinets where I had all these classified papers and spun the dials and opened them up. And they were all empty because these are then become presidential records and they're all taken off to the presidential library. So if you think about it, Brzezinski showed up with no documents, no paper and no staff except for three or four of us until he could bring in his own. Fast forward to the transition from Bush 
to President Obama, there was a lot of communication between the outgoing and the incoming national security teams. We told all the senior directors, this more political level, perceived as political level, that they would be leaving on election day, but the junior people stayed in place. We had someone designated to run each office. So when uh, the new team came in, when Jim Jones and Tom Donilon came in, they had a staff from day one to use, and they would turn it over and bring in their own people, but they could operate from day one. Similarly, we told the staff, copy those documents that you need to continue to do your job after, uh, after inauguration day. So that when the originals of those documents disappeared, you'd have the documents you would need to do the job you need to do. We provided transition briefings. We provided transition memos. We provided, I provided a stack of memos and action documents of things that were pending that the new team would have to uh, decide what they needed to do with on, on day one when they walked in the office. So I think we've done a lot better uh, at developing the art, if you will, of transitioning from one administration to the next. I think it's a good news story, actually. And I want to come back to this because, Steve Hadley, you essentially created the gold standard for transitioning in the national security space, that the Obama team basically says, Steve Hadley, Josh Bolton, they created the highest standard possible and others should emulate it. In fact, Dennis McDonough, when he was on the way out, and Susan Rice, when she was national security advisor, they basically said, I want to do what Steve did. So, but when you talked about meeting with Jim Jones and Tom Donilon, did you kind of go through which staffers would stay and which ones would go with them and you'd have agreement or you kind of picked them and then Tom and General Jones showed up and and those staffers were there? It was more the latter. You know, we can always improve. One of the problems is the outgoing team, you know, has a lot to do. You know, you're you're closing down the shop. You're going through all your documents, you know, organizing them. There's a lot going on in these administrations. And, of course, the new team has a lot going on as well. So there's not a lot of time for interaction. And, and I think there's a second phenomenon that goes on any new administration. We were guilty of it when we took over from the Clinton administration, And I think the Obama administration probably was guilty of it, too. You've won an election. You feel empowered. You almost think you're writing on a blank sheet of paper and that anything the the prior administration did really probably didn't work and needs to be reexamined. And the other problem is an incoming team is you don't realize how much has changed. I remember Sandy Berger said to Condi Rice and me, he said, you know, a lot has changed since you guys were in the White House or in the administration last time. You don't realize it, but you're going to spend a lot of time dealing with terrorism and Al Qaeda. And of course, he was absolutely right. And these were phenomenon that we hadn't had to deal with at all in our prior time of government. So I think if I could make one change, I would say both the outcoming team and the incoming team slow down, spend more time to, to, together, and recognize that that there's a lot that the new team can draw on in terms of knowledge and ongoing initiatives that can be theirs when they walk into the office. We did a whole lot of memos on the issues of the day, what we found, what we did, how it worked out, what the challenges for the new team. I can't tell you that any of those memos were actually read by the new team. So I think 
more interaction between the incoming and outcoming administrations is the priority, I think, for improving transitions further. Well, we actually looked it up and you did 275 memos for the incoming Obama team, which I think is, is a record. Kurt, when you came in to the State Department Assistant Secretary of State, you obviously led a big shift in the direction towards China and Asia under President Obama and Secretary Clinton. What was the transition like at the State Department when you went into the State Department? That's a really good question, David. I, I just, I'm reflecting now a little bit on, on some of the stuff that Steve said. I, I will also say, I remember during that period that people holding up Steve's role as a person who'd reached out across the aisle, even during periods of governance, not just during transitions. And that trust, I think, helped in that process. And, you know, people throw around gold standard a lot, but this is truly the case. I started the 2000, I guess, eight, I can't remember when, nine transition at the Pentagon. And I was part of a massive team that really, frankly, wasn't really clear what we were doing. There was a lot of sitting. I couldn't figure out how to get on my computer. Um, it was very complicated. And, you know, the, the top folks were off meeting with the secretary and stuff. I had, you know, a few meetings in policy and the like, but it, it was, you know, a little bit discouraging, you know, as exciting as it could have or should have been. That part of the transition, we were sequestered away in an office kind of outside of the Pentagon, if we wanted to come in for meetings, Secretary Gates insisted that we'd be escorted in. It, it was not the the kind of welcome that that you know I think folks had hoped for. But at the same time, these are you know challenging military situations, and so only a couple of people uh, are asked to really play a significant role. So about halfway through that, I got a call from Secretary Clinton saying, you know, would you like to come over, you know, to interview? I interviewed. I will say one funny story before just telling you about the shift at the, the State Department. I remember walking into the transition office where, you know, we're all waiting to be interviewed. And there is just the massive, Dave, it would be impossible to describe probably 500 binders of those really thick binders, you know, the ones that, that look like they're about six inches tall, just stacked up in a corner. They looked like they were, it was almost like a couch of binders, right? And I remember asking a staffer, this one of the irreverent guys that worked with Secretary Clinton, I said, what are those? And he goes, those are transition binders. And I said, what are you going to do with them? And he said, we're going to drop them on Afghanistan because we've tried everything else. And, and so what was interesting about the process is, you know, that they the State Department has it down kind of, you know, to a science, you're assigned a young officer, you know, you're checked in, he or she brings you readings every day, you have uh, careful meetings, you go through, it's all, you know, this is all pre-confirmation. So a lot of his preparation, you know, you talk a little bit about, you know, what what's expected in terms of what your role and mission would be, you know, there's wiring diagrams. It takes up a lot of time, briefings from the legal team, learn, learn a lot about, you know, ethics and the like. It had a quality that was a little bit, you know, kind of like going through orientation, but I found it extraordinarily interesting and it was good preparation as well. And Steve, you faced kind of two of the ultimate tests in 2000 and 2001, which were you had a shortened transition because of the Bush v. Gore recount. So 37 days as opposed to 75. And then eight months later, 
9-11 occurred. So what was the linkage or what was the impact of a shortened transition on the Bush administration's preparation for 9-11? I don't think it had much of an impact. I think the outgoing Clinton administration and then National Security Advisor Sandy Berger, the late Sandy Berger, did a, a good job by us. Again, he had a lot of things going on. We had the National Security Advisor, Condi Rice. Uh, I was her deputy. We had a lot of things going on. So I don't think the shortened transition affected us much. I think two, th- two things that you can do to mitigate that. One is try to bring in vet- a veteran team from the get-go. So even though it's new in the administration, it's not new in the life and experience of people who are there in responsible positions. You know, we had Vice President Cheney, we had Secretary Rumsfeld, we had Secretary Powell. Uh, these are people who've been around the block. So I think that's, uh, that's one of the things that's important to do. If you have a veteran team, you're in a position to to handle the uh, the surprises that come. The other thing is on operational aspects, like ongoing military activities, or in, in this case, the ongoing struggle against uh, Al-Qaeda, the Sandy Berger's terrorism group headed by Dick Clark. And we basically said, stay on, be part of the Bush administration, keep doing what you're doing to defend the country. We're going to probably relook at strategy and take some different approaches. But in the interim, keep doing what you're doing to keep the country safe. And I think that is also important so that you're not standing down a capability in a transition, but you're able to continue to do those operational things where the country might be vulnerable. You do get surprised. I mean, we did have a develop a more, uh, I would say, a more strategic approach dealing with Al-Qaeda. We went through the interagency process. It's difficult because people weren't confirmed until April, May, or even June. And that causes a delay for the new team to get your strategies in place. But we perfected what we thought was a great new strategic approach to Al-Qaeda, and we sent it to the president for his signature on the 10th of September. And of course, on the 11th of September, 9-11, Al-Qaeda made a strategic attack on the United States. So I think the biggest thing you lose at the front side of a new administration is that period of time from January 20 until your senior people are actually confirmed and in their positions, which usually goes from January until May. That is a problem because it really, no matter how good the transition is, it means that you get a very slow start on getting your own team up to snuff and your own policies in place. You raised this interesting issue of holdovers. So you all had Dick Clark, who you know had a distinguished career on counterterrorism, stay over. And then the Obama administration asked a number of Bush officials to stay over until they can get their people in place. In this election, you know, the animosity seems greater. The tension seems much more significant. So should Vice President Biden win, you know, how would you advise the Biden team to think about asking selected people to hold over and stay over in in key national security uh, related positions? Kurt ought to talk about this. I would urge them to do it. You know, part of it is the the National Security Council staff has a tradition of being nonpartisan. You know, you don't ask people who they voted for or what party they're affiliated. They are professionals 
a small group are hired, uh, maybe from academia or the like, but a lot of them, people on the NSC staff, are from the Defense Department, State Department, or the intelligence agencies. They are professionals, and they are committed to serving the President of the United States, whether Republican or Democrat. That tradition is really important to maintain. It's, I think, come under some strain uh, recently. It always does. I remember every time there was a leak out of the NSC staff, of which there weren't many, Karl Rove would come to the president and say, you see, Mr. President, Hadley can't control his staff. We need to get some people in there who are loyal to you, Mr. President. And I would come back and say, Mr. President, these are the best professionals the country has to offer serving you, and they are loyal to you. They serve the office of the presidency of the United States, whether Republican or Democrat. You need to preserve that tradition of the NSC. And President Bush understood that, and he protected the staff every time. Kurt, do you have anything to offer on that question? Yeah, I, I like the way Steve uh, raised it. And I do think, at least for an interregnum, at least for a period in which you can understand what things are in motion, what are some of the ongoing operations. The thing for me that I worry the most about is the tendency that we write about in the book that Steve referenced, which is a belief that everything done by the previous administration and the one that you're replacing is mistaken. And I find myself uh, in, in a couple of briefings senior briefings in which I've said, look, you know, there are some things about uh, President Trump in Asia that that we should look at carefully. You know, I, I understand the situation in Europe is more popular and, and, and more complicated in, in Asia than you might expect. And there's appreciation for some of the things that he's done. And we have to understand that. And, and I, I can tell you that sometimes when you say things like that, it's not, it's not viewed necessarily particularly well. It's almost as if it's seen through a loyalty lens. And, and that's really where mistakes occur, in which you are unable to appreciate that there will inevitably be areas of continuity, and there should be, not just in personnel, but in arenas of policy as well. It's, it's a great point, and this is at the core of the partnership's work, which is the importance of the career employees who, as Steve said, are loyal to the country, not to one president or another. They are just doing their job. And then second is this idea that Steve talked about of pausing and taking your time to have some continuity. And let's just turn to that, Steve. So we had Josh Bolton on, on this uh, podcast a while ago, and I said, well, what was it like working with the Obama people? Because essentially they were running against Bush. Everything that Bush did was bad and everything Obama was going to do was good. And he said, well, actually, Bush was so unpopular at that moment that McCain and Obama were running against us. So, But when you were dealing with the national security team for president-elect Obama, you know, a significant part of their campaign was against Bush. The war in Iraq was wrong. We need to close down Guantanamo you know, issue after issue. And so how did you deal on policy issues with the incoming team to, you know, not kind of argue your brief that everything you did was right, but to have them reflect and pause and to say it's a little more complicated than one might say in a campaign? It's tough. You don't have a lot of time to do that. And I think, you know, it's it's not the time to fight out the disputes 
on issues of policy. It is to to get the new team in a position so that they can govern as as promptly as they can. You know, elections have consequences. And I think one of the things that's important about the system, and it's implicit in what you said, David, people don't understand what really happens and this interaction between political appointees and the permanent government, the civil service, the foreign service officers, the intelligence officers, the military leadership. You know, you have an election, a president is elected usually on a platform or at least some elements that have been ratified in that election in terms of policy, then brings in a layer of political appointees to help that the president implement that policy agenda that has in some sense been ratified by the American people in the election. But they then have beneath them the permanent government, which is the repository of expertise, of experience, of historical perspective. And under our system, the two are supposed to, you know, to clash in some sense and intermediate. Those political employees are supposed to intermediate between the political agenda that has come out of the election and the experience, expertise, and judgment that is inherent based on the experience of the permanent government. Our system is designed that way, that there is that kind of interaction and the policies uh, that come out of the election are tempered by that experience of the permanent government. That's our, the way our system works. It's not that the deep state is subverting the political appointees. They're supposed to actually live in a certain amount of dynamic tension. That's our system and how it's been designed. I think it's served us well, but I think it is not understood well uh, by a lot of Americans today. So Steve, we could have a second term of President Trump. And one of the things that I've read about you and that you've talked about in some of the partnerships events is that when Bush won his second term, you went to him and said, you should get rid of your entire national security team, including me, and get a fresh team that can serve you well with fresh eyes, fresh legs, fresh arms, you know, and fresh enthusiasm. So why did you say that? And what did Bush say to you? Look, it was a, the first term of the Bush administration was very contentious. A lot of difficult issues having to do with the war of terror with Afghanistan and Iraq. And I felt that if he got a new team, it would in some sense purge the system and give him some flexibility to relook at policies and have in some sense a fresh start on the second term. I thought the symbolism would be good. I thought the substance would be good. I didn't lose a lot of arguments with the president, but I lost that one. And I think it was because he uh, had some people that he uh, wanted to keep around him, uh, and but also put in new positions and different positions uh, and sort of rejigger his, his team. And I think that is in order. I, I think it would have helped him had he followed my advice. But you know, you, you think about it, it's very hard to find people for these most senior and challenging jobs that have the skills and experience to do them well. And uh, I think when a president in a first term finds some people in whom the president has some confidence, he's uh, loath to let them go in a second term, even though I had the better argument of the president in 2004, 2005. 
So final question, if you could give one piece of advice from your lessons learned over your many years of government service and also occurred in your years of writing and analyzing, what would you suggest to the Trump team and to the Biden team to focus on should they win on November 3rd? So Kurt, do you want to start? I think there is a tendency to prepare like like a uh, Soviet era five-year plan. You, you map out, here's what we're going to do the first 100 days, 200 days. You know, it's transition officials work and think about this complex set of steps that are supposed once you assume office. And almost invariably, in the first collision with reality, those plans go astray. And so I, I try to argue, and I've really been almost uniquely unsuccessful at this, that you know simpler is better. The, the key is to get process correct and, and focus on the right people. You know, build your teams, make sure you understand what you're trying to achieve, have a few general policy um, aspirations laid down, but understand that, that really detailed plans that stretch out beyond the, the eye can see are unlikely to be valuable to the incoming team that assume positions. And Steve, your lessons learned? I'd echo a little bit what Kurt said. For the, for the Trump administration, if the president is reelected, I would say, to, if I had a chance to speak with him, I would say, Mr. President, you were elected to be a disruptor in chief uh, in 2016. You have been. You've disrupted a lot of policies. You've reset the table. Your second term is an op- opportunity to be a builder in chief. Don't be afraid to change personnel, to bring in people who can help you now build on the foundation of the first term. And secondly, take the time to look back and see what are the lessons learned for your first term so you can improve in your second term. For the Biden team, I would say really what Kirk said, don't think that you're coming in and and writing on a blank sheet of paper. You're going to have a lot of the same problems that your predecessors had. There are a lot of good things that your predecessors did that you are will be smart if you build on and make them your own. And don't be afraid to do that. Don't assume everything they did was bad and you're writing on a blank sheet of paper. History doesn't work that way. Well, Steve Hadley, Kurt Campbell, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your time and wisdom. And most importantly, thank you for your service to our country. Thanks so much. It was great being with you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much. If you like Transition Lab, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.